Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. Cam, what film are we looking at this week? We are going to take a look at the 2002 Born Identity, starring Matt Damon and directed by Paul Greengrass. Oh, wait, sorry. No, Doug Lyman. Oh, yeah, he, he'll be back in, in future films, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Cam, as we usually do, I will read the synopsis for this film from letterboxd.com. The Born Identity. He was a perfect weapon until he became the target. Wounded to the brink of death and suffering from amnesia, Jason Bourne is rescued at sea by a fisherman. With nothing to go on but a Swiss bank account number, he starts to reconstruct his life, but finds that many people he encountered want him dead. However, mm. how, oh, there's more. Oh, wow. However, yeah. <laughs> there's always a however. <laughs> there's more coming through. However, Bourne realizes that he has the combat and mental skills of a world-class spy. But who does he work for? And that's oh, the end of it. Okay. I was like, oh, is this going to keep going? I, I'm, I'm like gripped in my chair right now. I'm like, this is better than Where the movie. End? <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit longer than last week's one, I have to say. Yeah, no kidding. With the Hitchcocks, they're like, here's one sentence that's good enough. <laughs> Even though Bourne, it's such like a basic story, but they're like, no, no, this is going to take emphasis. <laughs> and he's known for not particularly talking too much. And they're just <laughs> like, words. This is what it needs, more words. <laughs> it's very wordy. You're right for a character that barely speaks. <laughs> it's like reading a synopsis for Conan the Barbarian that's like seven sentences long. <laughs> How do we make this clear for people at home? Hmm. that's a definitely thorough i think that underscores exactly what the movie is so you can't say it's false advertising no as i said before it does what it says um my first question is always what were your initial thoughts of the film so i saw this movie back in 2002 it opened in the summer and i remember going with zero real interest it was kind of like oh this movie opened I don't know what the born identity means. Um, the books of Robert Ludlum hold no you know, impact on my life whatsoever. My dad enjoyed them, but that meant I was never going to read them. <laughs> um, so I went with a friend and we both walked out being like, hey, that was really enjoyable. But I would be lying if I said that it really stuck in my mind as something that would be revisited a lot. This was actually the second time I've ever seen it. So while, you know, I enjoyed it the first time around, I was uh, definitely looking forward to diving into it a second time. Uh, We actually slightly differ on that one there, Cam. I didn't see this one in the cinema. I saw it on home video, but then actually managed to see the rest of them from that point in. But um, I remember somewhat enjoying it. I think it was around about 2003 by the time I got a hold of it. But it didn't really stick much in, in my brain. I think I remember the sequels more than I remember the original one. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about this movie is that, and something we're going to have to debate a lot, I think, over the course of this review and when we're talking about the knock list, is the entire concept of the Bourne franchise and all the things people associate it with. A lot of the elements come from the sequels, not so much the original. Yeah, this film, it feels like he's putting together the pieces to become the person that you know as Jason Bourne. Which makes sense because he has amnesia. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit like Dr. No in that when you watch Dr. No, you don't have the pre-credits sequence. You know, the opening doesn't feel quite right. Uh, A lot of the elements aren't quite in place. So you have to come down to, does this work as a great spy story? But as a franchise entry, it's definitely a little proto, not quite there. Which, you know, a lot of these series do need to have that sort of foundation in which they build upon. So I'm not taking any points off of them for actually taking the time to build up the character mm-hmm. no exactly yeah i have no problem with it but um how how did this film do give me some sort of background on the film well this movie um as i said was released in the summer of 2002 and it basically came out with a lot of bad buzz around it that this was a problem movie that had been kicked around the release schedule for a while a lot of behind the scenes battles we'll get into in a second it really didn't have a big splashy debut in theaters, but uh, it had a budget of $60 million 
and earned domestically $122 million and another $92 million international for a worldwide total of $214 million. So it was in many ways a sleeper hit, not maybe the big hit that some of the sequels would be, but I think the studio definitely walked away going, oh, we might have something here. Just uh, keeping track in my head, I think this is our lowest grossing film so far. I think you're right, yeah. And, um, you know, for the worldwide box office that year, it fell at number 19 between the Eminem drama 8 Mile and the um, um, Hannibal Lecter prequel film Red Dragon. The number one movie of that year was Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Number two was Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And number three was Spider-Man. That top three right there is representative of every top three from basically 2002 onwards, where it's franchise films uh, and the biggest properties win. Yeah, that, that seems to be the reality we live in now, for films at least. Now, I didn't realize this when I sat down to do my box office research, but Scott, 2002 may have been the biggest year for spy movies ever. Like, we are going to cover this year a lot. Okay, so give me some examples of what we got up against it. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'll name the, the spy movies that beat J, uh, The Born Identity at the box office. So we had Men in okay. Black 2. We had Die Another Day. We had Austin Powers in Goldmember. And we had Triple X. And now you ask, you know, what movies did Jason Bourne beat that summer? Well, he beat The Sum of All Fears, Spy Kids 2, Island of Lost Dreams, The Tuxedo. No. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Heresy. The Tuxedo, Bad Company, I Spy, Undercover Brother, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which Matt Damon had a cameo in, The Quiet American, and The Truth About Charlie. That is a very stacked list of spy films for one singular year. It's insane. Like, that's, really that, insane. That's some golden ones as well. Not even just like whatever Z-list film. These are some top line films. And even if they weren't movies that necessarily are remembered well, they're ones with big stars. Like The Truth hmm. About Charlie was like a Mark Wahlberg vehicle. Um, Bad Company was an Anthony Hopkins, Chris Rock vehicle. Like stars were, you know, appearing in these movies. Was the Born Identity up against anything when it came out? Maybe that sort of hindered its box office success? I think it did as well as it was going to do. I mean, it was a pretty basic spy film, at least in terms of marketing with a title that people didn't really understand. So I think the fact that it did reasonably well shows that word of mouth was strong. And where I think Born Identity uh, really succeeded was on video. Like once it hit video, it was just like a runaway smash and really just continued to build from there. So I really think that was where it found most of its dot, dot, dot identity. Groan, groan, (laughs) groan. (laughs) I want to also make note of another... uh... Maybe a noteworthy movie that opened in 2002 on the um, box office uh, grocers. At number 37, Matt Damon appeared as the voice of a horse in Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron. I can't say I've ever heard of that one either. Was it? A, <laughs> I, I have nothing to say about that film. What on earth was it? I think it was just a movie about a horse. I never saw oh. it. Was a, it was an animated movie. We'll cover it on our... Um, on our uh, spinoff podcast, uh, Stallion Hearts. <laughs> Stallion Hearts. Oh, Lord. So, Cam, in the sort of primer, you mentioned there was some behind-the-scenes turmoil. What happened? So this movie, for being kind of a low-key opener, had a lot of drama behind the scenes. Um, even when you look at it on paper, so like Matt Damon, who's obviously a huge star, at this point was kind of struggling a bit. Like he'd had his huge breakouts with Goodwill Hunting, um, Saving Private Ryan, um, the talented Mr. Ripley. But then he kind of had a string of duds. Like he had The Legend of Bagger Vance, the golfing drama with Will Smith. I don't know if you remember that one. For some reason, I do. I don't think I ever saw it. I think I just remember seeing a trailer and going, no. Yeah, don't worry. No one ever saw it. (laughs) Um, He also did Billy Bob Thornton's All the Pretty Horses, which was a movie with a lot of... um, uh, prestige around it because it was based on the book by Cormac McCarthy and it was like a disaster like a massive massive disaster like no this, one saw it is this episode going to be equestrian themed <laughs> you're right I'm, I'm taking all our stallion hearts references <laughs> but um he did have oceans 11 leading up to this so like that was kind of a step back in kind of the, the spotlight but you really have to question with that first oceans 11 
was it a Matt Damon triumph or was it like a George Clooney, Brad Pitt triumph? You know, Julia Roberts triumph. I don't know. I, that film always makes me think of, of George Clooney, really. Yeah. But I know he was there, but yeah, he wasn't exactly the, the, the headline of that film. Yeah. And so like with him being cast as a lead in this movie, it was not like a guaranteed thing. And same with like Doug Liman directing it. Doug Liman had done a couple independent films. He did Swingers with Vince Vaughn and John Favreau, which was obviously a big breakout. And he also did the movie Go with uh, Sarah Pauly and Timothy Oliphant. I think Katie Holmes was in it. And like those movies had a lot of energy. Um, they had a lot of youth appeal. And so he seemed like someone primed to step up to the, you know, to the big uh, game. But it just turned out that like Doug Lyman's way of making movies really did not go well with what the studio expected from a you know, studio filmmaker. Um, he was working with the writer Tony Gilroy, who has gone on to become a very noteworthy writer-director. He did Michael Clayton. He did um, Duplicity. But um, at the time, he was more known for stuff like uh, Armageddon. He was one of the 17,000 writers that wrote Armageddon. He also wrote the Russell Crowe film Proof of Life and the Jamie Foxx action thriller Bait. So he wasn't exactly a big name, but he wrote a screenplay for this movie um, based on Robert Ludlum's novel, which is very different. Like... The whole Bourne series takes almost nothing from the Bourne novels other than names in some places. It's kind of like the Bond films taking very little from Ian Fleming. It's more of the spirit and the characters. But Gilroy wrote a script that really wanted to take a spy movie and do new things with it, like a franchise film that, that would feel different and fresh to audiences. And that's kind of what, um, what Doug Lyman wanted to do as well. He was very interested in bringing his independent kind of background to a spy franchise. So the two guys, I think they understood what they wanted to do, but they kind of clashed over how to do it. And so there was a lot of battles over the screenplay. Ultimately, they bring in a guy named William Blake Heron, who really hadn't done much and really only had a credit since then on the 2008 comedy Role Models with Paul Rudd, which is odd. But he came in and rewrote a lot of it. And uh, it just turned into kind of a battle where... Matt Damon was threatening to walk if the movie didn't go closer back to what Tony Gilroy had intended. Uh, the producer, the original producer of the movie left and they brought in uh, Frank Marshall. Frank Marshall is one of the great producers. He was Spielberg's guy. He did E.T., the Indiana Jones films. Uh, he's also a director in his own right. He directed Congo. I shouldn't have led with that one because it's terrible, but he did Congo, which is a fun movie, I think. He also did Arachnophobia. And he stepped in as a producer and it just turned into a real war in many ways between Lyman, the studio and Frank Marshall kind of going in between, but also having to sometimes assume director roles. So it was basically a nightmare throughout this production. It's funny you say that because watching this, I didn't really get the sense that it was that tumultuous behind the scenes. Um, I didn't know that about Matt Damon, certainly threatening to walk. So I assume he was sold on the original script and then, Obviously, the changes came along. He wasn't so happy with it. Pretty much, yeah. He said, he actually has a quote. He said, it became the exact kind of movie I would pass on that I don't want to do and that I avoided doing because there was a perfect number of explosions and everything. So it was very much a template style spy action kind of movie. And uh, yeah, like the thing with Doug Lyman is, and he's gone on to make great stuff. So I don't want to like slag Doug Lyman for maybe being messy on set because he would go on to do Mr. and Mrs. Smith. He would go on to do uh, The Edge of Tomorrow. He's done some really good stuff. He's a solid Hollywood director. But his thing is he likes to find his movies, which is his approach, which means not going in with a hard template, going in with some ideas and finding the movie as he's shooting in editing and kind of just piecing it together. And that's a mode that studios get very uncomfortable with. Although I should note that is the way that often Kevin Feige of Marvel prefers to do their movies, where he always says he finds their movies in the editing room. So it's not ridiculous, but at this point in time, I don't know that, you know, we, we right now in 2002 are still having that joining of the independent spirit of cinema in the 90s with the studio guys. So it's all these directors who are coming up in the 90s independent world, working their ways into the studio system. And I think just the two ways of working were very different. I mean, I could definitely see it from the point of a studio if a, a director kind of just wants to feel his way to a final product, especially when they have like dailies they're looking at and stuff like that. I can see them getting very twitchy when the film looks like a mess, basically. 
Yeah, I mean, and I don't think they were thrilled when there were stories like Doug Lyman paying the crew to stay late and play paintball. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to work on that set, but yeah, I, I could see them getting a bit antsy. Yeah, and so, you know, it, it all turned out okay for them, obviously, financially, but uh, I think it was a very tense shoot. This movie, though, like, it was originally scheduled for September 2001, which I have to believe it would have been bumped, but um, yeah. then they pushed it to February 2002, and then it wound up way back in June 2002. So, like, it was heavily delayed throughout. Which makes sense of what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Let's get into the meat of it then, I suppose. I will start off just by saying, of the three we've covered so far, this is the film I had the most trouble following. Mm, and yeah. not because I wasn't able to pay attention. It just wasn't keeping my attention. Right. I did enjoy watching this movie again like i think this is a really solid spy movie but i think when we talk about the knock list we're gonna have to have some hard conversations about what constitutes a movie worthy of entry into the knock list mm-hmm. I-, I will say like a lot of the elements of the world of jason Bourne, i found very involving um the amnesia stuff has held up very well as a plot mechanic um i think matt damon's fantastic and we'll get more into performances and everything later but For me, there's something about maybe the second half of this movie where I found there's a bit of a lull, but also you're right. Like for a very basic movie, the plotting is sometimes overly confusing. And a lot of the talk obviously that I just had was about how Doug Lyman likes to find his movies in the editing room. And I really got that sense a lot. There was like scenes where you'd see characters just like walking down a hallway where there would be voiceover of dialogue from an entirely different scene. And you could tell that they were kind of using impressionistic editing to just kind of pull everything together. But my guess is that there was a lot of, uh, you know, saving their bacon in the editing room going, this thing's slow. We got to speed it up. Let's start cutting this together and pasting that together. And not, and not to say I didn't enjoy bits of the film as you, as you did too. I, there were several uh, sort of moments, several like the chase scene in the car, things like that. Great, great bits of cinematography. But I just think I, I, it's the first film so far that we've covered that I looked at my phone. I, I, I don't know if that's damning or not. I just that maybe that's how I am as a person, but it's the first one so far. Was it like the plot of the movie or was it like the character stuff or what was it that you just found kind of tough to, I guess, really, uh, you know, it didn't necessarily transfix your uh, imagination? I think I got quite far, maybe. Maybe the second half of the film is actually about the time maybe that's when I started losing my interest in it. Especially mm-hmm. when you get to bits post the, the mini chase, you know, you know, bleaching her hair and they're going undercover, or they're running away to the, the, the snowy part of France, wherever that was, uh, and a bit in the house with the family, staring at the kids, and you just think, okay, <laughs> when are we going to get back into the action part of it, I suppose. And you can, all the bits are moving in the background. The chess pieces are moving, obviously. You've got the professor... I just remembering last week because we also had the professor last week. That's true, yeah. Um, so you had the professor obviously getting the message to go uh, take him out and things like that. But just, I think I just, I just zoned out a bit. Right. I'm not, I mean, I'm not, sometimes the things just don't click. I don't know. I feel like the first half of this movie is propulsive. It is like, you're Jason Bourne. You don't know what's going on. People are chasing you. And the movie just shoots you through that first hour. I thought very well. On a technical level, it's often really impressive. But when you get to that second half, it's a little more of the meditative stuff of, as you said, sitting in the, you know, kind of the safe house of this country cottage or whatever it is in France. Um, A lot of the characters just slowing down, which, um, yeah, like I get what you mean in that I found it a little tougher because the characters aren't as, you know, layered as they would be in, say, a a different type of movie that would spend a lot of time with its characters. Um, Jason Bourne doesn't have a heck of a lot of personality yet. And so a lot of it is just kind of like waiting for the inevitable because we know there's these characters like the professor out there. Um, Obviously Chris Cooper is still wanting to bring, you know, everything all held down on um, Jason Bourne, but we're kind of waiting for them to basically set up their end game but also kind of explain to the audience exactly what is going on behind the scenes and everything that led up to 
you know, the um, circumstances that placed Bourne where he was at the start of the movie. Yeah, it was just a, for me, just a case of I didn't care a lot about everyone. So the, the family in that uh, safe house, did you say, okay, I don't want kids to get, you know, killed or anything in films, but I didn't particularly care about them and didn't even know their names. And yet we're meant to be like, oh, hide the kids in the basement. And, um, you know, Marie, the, the love interest in the film, didn't really have much of a, a time to care about her particularly. She's just sort of dragged along for most of the film. I liked her a lot, actually. I liked Franca Patente in this movie. She's an actress who I always felt kind of got a bit of a short end of the straw um, when it came to careers. Like, I think she actually was pretty strong an actress. And did you ever see Run, Lola, Run? I was looking at the film and I was looking at her IMDb page, but no, I don't think I've ever seen it. Like, it's a really fantastic um, uh, German film that's basically all set to dance music, uh, techno music, and it's basically her having to run to save her boyfriend. And it's like 90 minutes of, like, propulsive, like, very tense action-slash-thriller filmmaking. And I was a huge fan of that movie, so I was excited to see her in this. What I liked about her character is that I kind of buy her going along with this entire thing versus like, say, some of the uh, female leads in Bond movies where you go, mm, I have real questions whether you'd be hopping on this mission. Well, I suppose at the start, you know, she's offered the money. That makes sense. And then she's curious when they get to France. That makes sense again. But there's, there's a bit where I just think you're clearly in danger at this stage. Why on earth are you still here? You've got the $20,000. I think it's when they're outside the train station in Paris. I, I said to myself, just go. Well, I mean, I think... here for you. I think what works, though, is that, like, it's very clear that she's being hunted as well. And so you have that moment where the uh, French authorities set up, like, a really clumsy sting to try and capture Jason Bourne. Don't get and... me started on that. Do not get me started on that. <laughs> we'll get back to that. But... Um, <laughs> she wants to take off. She's like, this is over my head. I got to get out of here. But Jason Bourne says like, you can't, you'll get killed here. We have to get you to a safe place. So I think the thing is the movie keeps basically every time we start to go, this character should really take off. Jason Bourne basically tells the audience, she can't go yet. She's not safe. <laughs> it's like they're, uh, it's like they can hear my thoughts. <laughs> so the thing is, we're on the topic of the, the sort of the police in this film and, I just think there's a lot of sloppy work on that on that part, especially. They just sort of casually walk up to the car when they know there's an, a, a guy who's wanted for murder, I believe, at this point. Mm -hmm. um, three of them casually walking up, and they just seem like completely surprised when he just drives off in the plenty of room they've given him. I just yeah. think, oh, okay, you could do better than that, guys. It doesn't say I, a lot for uh, France's finest. I mean... Is it helped at all by the fact that we cut to Chris Cooper being like, what's going on over there with the police? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think it's helped by that fact but then that's not the first time in the film where he slips by other agents or police with uh, barely trying at all are we supposed to just take that though as underlining just how badass Jason Bourne is I think that's how we're supposed to see it yeah. he, he certainly doesn't seem to break a sweat and I suppose that plays into sort of earlier on in the film when he's uh, sleeping in the park in Zurich and the police wake him up there and he just takes them both down without even really thinking about it. Matt Damon is really good in this movie at these scenes where his basically his superpowers or whatever come out, his spy powers. And he has the ability to demonstrate these like physical abilities or strategic abilities while also looking surprised at his own achievement. <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually kudos to, to Matt Damon on that one. There's several times in the film where he's just, you think of like earlier on in the film when he's talking to himself in the mirror on the boat in different languages and he has no idea why he's saying it or how he's saying it and you, you actually believe him. You really do. And I know a lot of the um, decision making behind the creative direction of this movie was that they wanted to basically make an anti-Bond movie, um, you know, a spy franchise movie that stripped away the artifice and sort of the cheekiness of Bond movies. And... Um, I think at this point, too, Bond was maybe starting to sag a little. This is after The World Is Not Enough, and maybe there was some thinking that we could do something different, and maybe Bond is getting a little tired. And I have to wonder, like, I guess I got a couple points, but the way that Jason Bourne is played by Matt Damon in this character, is this performance from Matt Damon 
like a cut above the type of performance we would see, say, as an actor as James Bond, maybe before Daniel Craig. Yeah, I would say it's certainly you would also you would almost say it's like a proto Daniel Craig. Mm-hmm. Without some of maybe some of the cheekiness that he does pull off from time to time. And that that is fine, and you you enjoy that bit. But I, I maybe I maybe I missed the, the 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 cheekiness. And I think that's totally fine. I think I said the same thing back in two thousand two. But um, I, I have to wonder, like with a character like Jason Bourne, it's so much is internal, and so much is just played out in very like brief flickers, you know, in his eyes or in his expression, that it does feel like a much more subtle type of performance, obviously, but also a more nuanced type of thing that you would have to get across than an actor playing James Bond. I think Daniel Craig had the bar raised for him in terms of performance um, as Bond, but Jason Bourne does seem like a trickier job. I think this type of performance could be really boring. Really boring? <laughs> as soon as I said that, I was like, yep, <laughs> the boring identity. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's it. I'm sure that's been written down somewhere before. I'm sure it has, but uh, I like some of the actors considered for this because Matt Damon wasn't the number one choice. Brad Pitt was, um, you know, being discussed. He left instead to do Spy Game with Robert Redford. Um, Russell Crowe was also um, considered as well. I think you needed to give this film to an actor with some chops. So I think Matt Damon is a good choice. And as you said before, it is more, you know, contemplative in, in his approach. He's not like, you know, uh, Sean Connery or Roger Moore just chewing scenery his whole mm. way through the film. Um, so I'm glad they've got an actor with some some clout behind it. So, I mean, is that is that sort of your feelings on his portrayal then? You're quite happy with what he did? I really was. Like, he had a man of action kind of mode that I thought was very satisfying to see realized. Um, and when you see moments, like, for example, there's a scene early on, um, he's escaped from a consulate, or he's about to escape, and he's up on a fire escape, and he has a bag carrying money and, I, um, and um, passports and all that sort of stuff. And he drops it. And we have this scene where he just does this very graceful descent from this fire escape down to get his bag and to get away that I really admired because it's all played out very unflashy. Like this movie does not have action that's flashy the way Bond action sequences are. It's very like matter of fact, but shot incredibly well. And it feels very real world, like even the locations. We spend a lot of time in like hallways, back alleys, just places that like the Bond franchise, those locations don't exist. Yeah, you're right. It certainly does feel more down to earth in that, in that regard. There isn't tons of explosions really at all. Um, and it has that sort of gritty feel to it. And you're right, when he's climbing down the side of the embassy, it's there's no like it's not a place for laughs. It's not he's not quipping on the way down or anything like that. Nor is there like a particularly over the top action score going on in the background. He's just climbing down the building to get away. Yeah, you have a very basic um, score by John Powell, which I thought was really effective. But it's only used sparingly. A lot of this movie is played out without a score. There's a big battle in a stair uh, stairway at the end of the film that is entirely free of music whatsoever. I'm I'm really glad you mentioned that action uh, sequence there because I have a note. Uh, have you ever watched a TV show called Red Dwarf? I haven't. No, I, okay. I know of it. There's a there's a moment, in, I think season three, season four, where one of the characters is is portraying his like superhero version of himself, and he ends up skydiving on a crocodile, standing on top of a crocodile, sort of surfing it, and then shooting someone at the same time as he falls down from I think an aeroplane off the top of my head. Yeah. And all I had was a vision of that in, in my head as he, as he body surfed his way to the bottom ground while shooting someone. It was, <laughs> it was, it was akin to the, the GoldenEye uh, plane escape for me. I was like, what the hell is this? It's interesting because this stairwell sequence was actually added after production. They screened the movie with a, um, a close-to-done uh, final version, I guess. And um, the, stu- the studio walked away kind of going, well, audience scores were okay, but I think we need a bigger ending. So they went back and shot this stairway battle. Because when you watch the movie, and I had done the research before I watched the movie, you notice that Jason Bourne basically beats up Chris Cooper's character, takes off, gets in this big fight, walks away limping, 
And we don't see or hear from Bourne again until we just see him walking across like a bridge or something. And he's not limping. He doesn't look too rough. So you can tell that that sequence, it was very much a insert here kind of uh, sequence, even though I think it's very effective. See, I was going to ask you about that. You didn't mention it in sort of the briefing part at the beginning, but there's, there was obviously some, some reshoots at some point. Yeah, it seems like that's a big part of it was just that stairway sequence. And it's pretty effective. I mean, yes, we can laugh at sort of the um, over-the-topness of riding the body <laughs> down the, uh, to, what, like three floors or something like that. It felt but, more like Ben. I thought, like, how is this guy's ankle surviving this fall? What's going on? He is a superhero <laughs> at that point. <laughs> he really is. And I really did enjoy that sequence, but it is a heightened level of action that we don't necessarily have in the rest of the movie. Like, when you look at the car chase you referenced earlier in the mini, um, that chase sequence I actually kind of appreciated because I made a note you know, if this sequence happened in a James Bond movie, he'd be in like, you know, an Aston Martin or like a beautiful sports car. Whereas Jason Bourne's doing it in a mini, which feels very intentional. But when you get to that final sequence where he's like riding the body down, I'm like, I mean, I don't know that a real world spy operative would necessarily take that tactic. It it certainly seemed like a bit of a gamble. Um, But actually that, you didn't mention it, but was the the very obvious use of green screen at the beginning and the end of the films also a use for those reshoots? Because those scenes were so jarring on my Blu-ray copy. Oh, what scenes in particular? I really didn't see them. Um, so was it the beginning where uh, Conklin is talking to Ward Abbott, I believe, um, when they're, they're sort, of, sort of debriefing him? And then there's right at the end where Ward is talking to, I guess, Congress or something like that. Okay. Where it is so clearly a green screen. It like it was jumping off of my television. And that's that's why I thought there were reshoots. It was so it was so obvious that they were just sitting on a chair next to each other and they green screened it like sort of a it's like a lunch hall, I think, at the beginning. And then obviously the conference room at the end. And I just thought this is horrible CG work. I mean, it wouldn't shock me. I think there was some patching together on this movie. As I referenced earlier, the weird scenes of just like dialogue exchanges happening over just characters walking down hallways um it it wouldn't surprise me if they were some inserts just to make the movie clearer because while i don't have anything against the doug lyman approach to finding the movie um throughout production and in editing i don't know that that's the world's greatest approach when it comes to like a spy film that depends on plot points connecting i mean could you have seen alfred hitchcock doing the same thing for North by Northwest. No way. Alfred Hitchcock was notorious. Yeah, that was kind of a Hitchcock pun there. Um, but uh, was notorious for storyboarding his movies long in advance. And to the point where he actually did not enjoy production because he would always say, I- I've seen this movie already. Like now I'm just basically reliving it. Over and over and over again. Yeah. And the monotony of going every day to shoot you know, a shot of Cary Grant just running down a hallway and being like, yeah, 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 I've seen this. I storyboarded it. I know what this movie is. And so Hitchcock would always kind of complain about that. But in this case, yeah, it does feel like um, maybe when they got to the end, there was a lot of missing pieces that they need to connect. Because while the overall thrust of the movie is very basic, I mean, very basic, you know, guy is stood up by his own government on the run, they want to kill him to clean up, you know, basically a job that they screwed up. Um, that's very basic. That comes across in like a sentence or two. But there's a lot of details. There's a lot of scenes of Chris Cooper and Brian Cox talking about the various aspects of the job and Treadstone and various programs and all this sort of stuff that I remember began to annoy me as the franchise kept going. Here, it's actually pretty stripped down in comparison to some of the later ones. But at this point, even still, you have two characters who you could tell they were like, the audience is not going to be able to follow this. These two characters need to be explaining these things. And at least with sort of um, Carrie Grant in North by Northwest, you, you, you bought that you were meant to be confused going through the film. You look at North by Northwest where like a lot of the exposition comes, say, at that airport scene where Hitchcock deliberately drowned out the audio with the airplane uh, noises because he's just like, ah, the audience doesn't care. It just allows the characters to exchange this information. Which is ultimately what you want is your sort of main character to have an idea of what's going on so he can complete the story. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I've got one thing to say about Bourne before I'm I'm done with him. I I did uh, I did understand his reaction a little bit. You remember the scene uh, just after they've uh, dyed Marie's hair? The Bourne hairdresser scene? Yes, the the very long shot of him dyeing her hair and and even though I think most people could do it themselves with a self-dye kit, but he's doing it for her. <laughs> He's, he's such a benevolent guy like that, you know. He seemed very good at it. Is this a sign that part of his training was as a hairdresser? Had he gone undercover at some point as a stylist? Yes, yeah, so he's saying he was sort of pretending to be Zohan or something like that. He spent a, a few months undercover in New York in a, in a salon. I mean, why the, not? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> he was very effective with just a pair of scissors and some dye. <laughs> he got the job done, I suppose. But my my gripe was what came afterwards. I think it was directly afterwards. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But then she she leans in for a kiss. Yeah, it's around that point. That's the first full-on love scene for sure. Yeah. Okay. So when I was watching the film, he she goes in for the kiss. Actually, she goes in for the kiss, and he kind of freezes a little bit. And in my head, I'm going, "Ah, oh, that's not what James Bond would do." And then I kind of took the mickey out of him. She goes in to kiss him again. He still kind of just sort of like stares at her blankly. And then on the third attempt, he actually kisses her back. Basically, I I understood what he was going through because I've kind of been there before. So I have a a story from my past, Cam. Are you you ready to hear it? I am. Okay. I'm sorry to the person this also involves. I won't mention them by name, but uh, if she's ever listening, I am truly sorry for this. So I was about 15 Let's go with 15. And let's remember that Jason Bourne at this point, you know, has amnesia. He, in his head, he's never kissed a girl before. We can agree right. on that, right? Yeah, no, I buy that, yeah. Yeah, now this, I was around uh, a female friend's house one evening and we have been sort of flirting with each other, whatnot. And she goes in for the kiss. Now, I'm a 15-year-old boy. I like girls a girl is kissing me. Your instant reaction would be like, this is a good thing, sure. Right? Sure, yeah. Logically, that would make sense. Scott, at the age of 15, however, decides to shout out, what the hell are you doing? Oh, wow. <laughs> and then push her off me and proceed to walk out of the room. Wow. Now, I finally... I, looking back, I can understand what Jason was going through in that moment because... You have no idea what's going on. It's kind of like a deer in headlight situation. And it kind of fight or flight. So I ran away, obviously. At least he stood his ground and then kissed her back after a little while. So I, 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 I sort of identified with him. I, I born identified with him. Well, and also, I mean, you look at where this character is coming from emotionally. I mean, he'd be very conflicted and confused. So I kind of buy that he's not necessarily leaping at this connection that say like i don't know that i would say james bond has a lot of emotional connections james bond's more of a leap before you look type whereas like matt damon plays born as as you said yeah like someone who's repressed in a lot of ways but also just doesn't really he's alien like he feels like an alien character a lot of the time yeah i agree and i want to thank you for not taking the mickey out of me for admitting that one there (laughs) who knows what kind of embarrassing stories i'll have about myself going forward Plenty of time to find out. (laughs) That's right. But I mean, what I found interesting about this love scene was, yeah, first off, Matt Damon's sort of reserved nature. Again, very different than a lot of the spy movies we're going to cover. But also, you know, you see like um, the camera focuses more on his physique than hers really throughout this movie. But, you know, it's him stripping off his shirt and showing him like the camera's on his back throughout it. And then in the morning, we see like she gets up and she's wearing like, you know, grubby boxers basically or shorts and like a tank top. Like it's not the like sort of the sexy post-coital stuff you see in Bond movies at all. Like it's played very realistic and the movie definitely focuses on more on his physique than anyone else's. That is, I think we we were coming back to that again, but that definitely is a, a through line through the film is realism. Definitely. And I even was remarking in my notes, um, Right off the bat, the movie opens with Jason Bourne floating dead in an ocean. This, you know, boat, uh, this fisherman pulls him in and is like pulling bullets out of his back and everything. And I wrote a note that just says, James Bond doesn't get shot. So right from the get-go, this movie is saying, this is not your ordinary spy. 
Yeah, he almost has to work his way back to the point of even being a spy. Exactly. And so I, I like how the movie managed to take the elements of not just the spy craft stuff, but also works in just human connection. So like for me, all that stuff really played well. Um, and so I kind of walked away satisfied in that regard, more so than I probably was the first time through. Yeah, it, it felt very grounded, I would say. I, I would agree with that. What did you, you kind of mentioned it earlier, but what did you think of the character of Marie? I really liked this character. I think we were at a point, you think about it, this character of Marie, who is a very different role actually in the book, much more of a damsel in distress type. Um, they made her a much more interesting character in the film. I feel like this was in many ways a response to um, the Denise Richards Bond girl in The World Is Not Enough. And some of the Bond girls that have been criticized in the past as being very one note or kind of cartoonish. Marie feels like a real person. I loved, like full on loved the scene after we have the big fight in the apartment, which I want to get back to. Um, but she walks out of that just like stunned. Like she has the moment where the assassin like hurls himself out the window and she goes like, why would someone do that? And we see her being escorted out the hallway and she's throwing up. Like there was a realism to that character that I completely bought. And I think Franca Patente did a fantastic job grounding her in a way where we didn't sit there going like, this character is dumb, which happens so often in these types of movies where you are a tag along, both with female and male roles, where they're tagging along with someone in an action movie. And you keep saying like, why is this character doing this? They must be really dumb. I could understand why she was doing the things she was doing and why she was reacting the way she reacted. I mean, apart from my, my blip, which I said, I think she would have left earlier on in the film. And, and as you said, they did sort of do their bit to explain why she was sticking around. <laughs> you don't have to accept yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, the film is what it is. It, if that's the story it's going with, that's fine. Yeah. But otherwise, I think she, she was fine. I think she served the, the plot well. I had no problem with the performance. And I did quite like the fact that she reacted how a normal person would when they're seeing someone get, you know, they're fighting with knives in a, in a room that, in a place where they, she's never been to before. It's all completely alien to her. And then he throws himself out of a window. Yeah, and I mean, not only that, there, it's not only is there like a fight with an assassin in this room, the assassin like comes barreling through a window out of nowhere, <laughs> firing a machine gun. Like it's pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty hilarious uh, submersion for her into the world of spidom. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I would probably look a bit concerned if someone jumped through my window right now with a machine gun. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. And I like that she gets smarter and smarter as the movie goes in terms of how she should be operating. Because when you get to the end where the Clive Owen character shows up on that family uh, cabin or whatever it is, uh, country home, you know, Matt Damon says to uh, Iman, I think is her friend, you know, to get the kids into the basement and everything. And she's the one being like, yeah, we got to go. We got to go. She understands what's about to happen and why it's important for them to get to safety. Yeah. You think by that point, she's seen a little bit of shit. She's, she's been driven at maximum speed around the, the, the streets of Paris. And there's a guy with a machine gun, in the same room as her. How <laughs> uh, world's up, turned upside down in a matter of a day, basically. I was curious though, you know, we talk about the Clive Owen stuff as well as the fight in the apartment. What did you think of like the hand to hand, or um, shooting type action in this movie. Very different than uh, James Bond action. I, that was probably one of the bits I actually enjoyed overall. I think the, the hand-to-hand combat felt realistic. It felt snug. It felt like you were there. You didn't lose track of who was who, which happens a lot in action films. Um, mm. It felt very... It, you could follow it through, which I liked. And it didn't feel like there was any wasted moves. And I mean, you have the introduction of the born trademark of using household objects in his fights. You have the pen in this movie, which yes. I thought was pretty well done. I, would, I, I saw the pen and I immediately did the whole uh, the Sean Connery line of the pen was much on the short. <laughs> Although wrong franchise. Yeah, yeah quite. But uh, that line lives in my head. <laughs> yeah, like that is such a great moment. Again, such a non-Bond type of moment. Like Bond would never do something like that. And uh, I, I like that. Um, I was curious though, like, when we get to that shootout with, um, with the professor played by Clive Owen, I was surprised at how it plays out in a, like a realistic kind of way where you have Bourne shooting like an explosion off, but then like using things like birds as diversions and then just like charging him in a field. Like it feels much more stripped down and gritty than you would see in a lot of spy action scenes. 
it feels like he's actually, even though he's already forgotten all of his, you know, his history, it feels like he's been through several of these sort of encounters before and knows exactly how to deal with it. And you, you're kind of in amazement as he deals with it so swiftly. As a guy in a hill with a gun, technically he's got them all pinned, but he manages to get around him and take him out with a double-barreled rifle. And we've seen earlier in the movie how efficient the Clive Owen character is at like assassinating people because he takes out this um, this um, ex-dictator, African dictator, that Matt Damon was assigned to kill. And um, we see it done so brutally and swiftly. And basically the Clive Owen character walks away, not a sweat, not a care, just gets the job done. And so he's really built up through action over the course of the movie as to why this character is so fearsome. And so to see Bourne take him down in this style really elevates Jason Bourne up a couple notches as the greatest spy of all time in terms of, uh, you know, technique. You, you actually get a moment of exposition with the professor as he's sort of slowly dying, which is probably the most natural bit of exposition in the film, I would say, mm-hmm. away from the sort of boardroom scenes with uh, Brian Cox and uh, Chris Cooper, um, where he actually learns a bit about the, the, the Treadstone project and, and how they're all the same and things like that. I also have to say that it, it may well have been uh, Clive Owen's like, easiest paycheck. Yeah, I was shocked actually how little he was in this movie. I wouldn't be surprised if it was one of those things where he'd done a lot more originally and it just was never used. Quite possible, because I wondered the same thing about Julia Stiles, whose character feels very just like she pops up in some key scenes, but she barely speaks. Um, it seems like the type of role that they wouldn't cast an actress of. I mean, she wasn't like a huge star, but she was pretty well known in movies like um, 10 Things I Hate About You um, I think they'd done the Othello adaptation O at this point. Like she was an actress with some, you know, name value. It's kind of weird to see her just like sitting silently in rooms. Yeah. I always, I always feel like if you can put someone's name on a poster and most people will go, Oh yeah, I know them. They're, they're doing quite well. And if Julia Stiles' name was on a poster in 2002, you'd know who it was. hundred so, percent. Yeah. For her to just be sort of popping by for a little bit of exposition. It, I, I found it to be a bit baffling, really. Obviously, she goes on to play a larger role later on, which I think, again, leads me to the concept that maybe she shot other things that were just never used. I have to believe so, because I just don't know if you're an actress, if you're, and you, you've starred in some movies. Like, Julia Stiles starred in movies of her own, and, um, and a, there was a number of them that were actually quite significant hits. And so if you're looking at this screenplay, they've approached you to play this role, you must be looking at this. If, it, if the script was exactly what we saw in the movie, which obviously the script was in flux, so that wasn't the case, but I don't think you'd sign on unless she was fighting for like the Marie role <laughs> and wound up in that role. But even then, I think she, it would be hard-pressed to decide that, yeah, this seems like a really great role. Yeah, I don't think she would jump at the chance to do that one either, really. I, think it, I, I, I honestly think it was a case of... Um, Ended up on the cutting room floor, unfortunately. But um, I did want to ask you about the... I mean, I can't really put my finger on it, but the villains of the film? There are yeah. a few. Um, I would say probably the big villain is uh, Chris Cooper's character, Conklin. Although it is obviously foreshadowed that Brian Cox's character is kind of the big bad going throughout the later films. But um, did, did, how did they work for you? I think Chris Cooper is amazing. <laughs> I mean, you cast Chris Cooper as a villain... And he will always walk away as an MVP. Um, He's amazing in The Muppets. (laughs) And I was waiting for his character to say maniacal laugh in this movie. But uh, if you're ever going to cast someone as a untrustworthy CIA guy who's trying to clean up his mess, Chris Cooper's great because he has that kind of sweaty desperation. He's got those kind of reptilian eyes. You buy him as a guy who would do cold things. Do you think we would uh, cast him? Actually, do you think he could do a Russian accent if we need to recast uh, Romanov in a GoldenEye remake? The only thing is, Oromov is such a bumbler that I don't know that I buy Chris Cooper as a bumbler. He seems very efficient. I feel like I've seen Chris Cooper behind a desk several times in several films. Oh, he's done it a couple times. Yeah, he's in another spy movie called Breach, which probably no one really remembers, but hopefully we cover it at some point. It's a pretty solid movie. So would you say the main villain is Chris Cooper's character in this film? Yeah, I would say he's the main because you've got the trio of assassins running through the movie. Um, Clive Owen's the most prominent one of them. You also have the um, ex-dictator um, played by Adewale Akinue Agbaje. 
Um, he is more of a distraction. Like you get the sense early on that he may be a major power player as a villain, but I think he's mostly there to kind of throw us off the scent a little bit. And his character is dispatched, as I said, by Clive Owen pretty quickly. Or potentially he had more and it was cut down either way. Could be. I mean, his role, though, is most important in what we see later in the flashback of the mission gone wrong because he was Bourne's target that went wrong, basically, and wound up with Bourne getting amnesia because he went to assassinate the guy on his yacht and his children were there. And I kind of appreciated that because we saw some foreshadowing of Bourne's connection to Marie's friend's children. And so you see that Bourne seems to have a, more of a sympathy around kids, which, you know, good for him. He's a good person. Uh, I don't know that some of the James Bonds would have that same sort of uh, <laughs> um, sensitivity. Well, yeah, I was just going to say there's certainly a few Bonds I don't think that would blink twice at uh, taking out someone in front of their children. Yeah, like they might grit their jaw and drive away, but uh, it would just cut to them drinking like a martini and being like, oh, I've got to drown out those demons. Whereas Matt Damon, you get the sense he has more of a moral line that he will not cross. It's just strange that it comes at the end of the film. Well, I mean, I guess that's the reveal. That's the thing is mm. that throughout the movie, they're basically teasing that we don't know what disrupted Bourne's programming or whatever, CIA training, what, led, what left him for dead. And ultimately, it's a moment of humanity and compassion, which you do not expect from someone who's trained as a you know, spy killer. No, I suppose it does a lot to humanize Bourne. As I say, I just found it a bit weird that the, one of the big developments comes at the end of the film. It's definitely a film I feel that it's meant to set up the sequels. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think it ties up as a package at the end, particularly. You wouldn't have been happy, though, if the movie had just ended with him, like the franchise had ended with him, just with Marie at that store by the beach or whatever? If they cut out the scene with um, Brian Cox's character at the end and then gone straight to the scene in Mykonos with the, the, the mopeds, I could maybe have seen it as a, as a contained unit. But because they do that bit where he's talking about the next project, which is what they use in later films, and he's, he's, kind of, he's got away with it almost, you're kind of thinking, well, what about this bad guy? I, yeah, I mean, the thing is, they knew when they made this movie, they had three books, three Robert Ludlum books. Um, there's more born novels than three but Robert Ludlum only wrote three himself. After right. that point, they were taken on by ghostwriters using his name. So they knew they had those three, even though they were taking nothing from those books in terms really of plots. They knew they had those titles and those brands. So I think there was definitely, I don't think this movie ends on like, say a cliffhanger where you need more, but they wanted to have those breadcrumbs there so they could continue if the movie was a hit. Sure. I, I can buy that. I suppose I'm just used to sort of sequelitis these days. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I kind of look for it now in films where they try and set things up. And I always, always feel happier when it feels like a self-contained unit. Right. Like I am a fan of the Christopher Nolan approach where he shoots every movie to be the solo movie. Like when he made The Dark Knight, which is a sequel, he said, I'm not thinking about any sequels. I'm just shooting this movie. And I, I do dig that approach. I think a lot of the continuity between sequels, if it's handled really well, it's fantastic. But when it's kind of clumsy, it gets frustrating. And so like, yeah, if you aren't necessarily digging the Brian Cox sort of setup for a potential sequel stuff at the end of this one, it could feel a little bit clumsy. Before we get to the point of talking about the list, I did just want to talk about a couple of the key sort of scenes in the film i mean we mentioned the mini scene and we mentioned the the pen fight as i wrote it down as yeah um but was there any other big scenes like that you enjoyed um there was just a little thing that I, made me laugh um that i want to note i'm glad you actually prompted me for this because i would have forgotten but we see a scene um in a swiss bank which i thought was a pretty tense scene uh, where mad damon goes in and he's going through his passports and we see all his different aliases because you have obviously Jason Bourne. You also have, what is it? John Michael Kane, which is mm -hmm. his alias that plays a bigger role in the movie where Kane was booked into hotels and everything they investigate. But I had to laugh when I saw his Canadian passport being a Canadian myself. I'm like, what kind of awesome name is Jason Bourne using 
when he's in Canada. And that name is Paul K. Paul K. K A Y? That's right. Now you have to fill in the blanks for me. Is that a particularly Canadian name? It's boring. <laughs> <laughs> oh, critical of young people there. I mean, I'm not saying we're boring. I'm saying like it's like the movie's like he's got to have an awesome name in America. Jason Bourne is a killer name. Uh, I'll give John Kane some badass points as well. But Paul K, who wants to see Paul K? <laughs> Are you saying you wouldn't get tickets to the K identity? No. <laughs> when you say K, now I just think of like Kmart or like an older woman's name in the 80s, like on a sitcom. Like Vera K or something like that. Or just a first name K. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. It's not a name you hear much anymore. But yeah, Paul K, I was like, come on, guys, give us something. <laughs> give me a bone here. Come on. And I don't know that Paul's the most exciting name either for a super spy. He follows up with Michael Caine, though, so he's kind of got that going for him. I guess, yeah. Um, the only other thing I, I quite liked was actually during the, uh, the, the staircase descent before he does the person riding to the bottom. Mm-hmm. I did find it quite badass when he gets that uh, silenced pistol and shoots it upside down. Oh, that was awesome. Yeah. I, I just think, like, yeah, okay, pretty badass here. I just love any scene where he operates really efficiently like i like the scene even when he's in the diner with marie and sizing up the entire room and how everything works you know i know to go to this car to get a gun i know that you know the guy at the bar you don't mess with him i like that he can size up rooms and i love any scene where he walks in and looks around because you instantly in your head start going he's doing all the things he said he could do hey i wouldn't say that uh, checking your exits is necessarily a spy thing i know i always check my exits but that's mostly so i could avoid social situations <laughs> i'm mostly just an idiot bumbling through life i think that's the third week in a row you said that now <laughs> that'll be another theme of the show <laughs> <laughs> we know i'm bad at accents and apparently um checking my exits add that to the, that list the cam list i guess i have a question for you though there's a scene where they're driving and Marie asks Bourne what kind of music he likes, and he can't remember. Here's my question to you. It's 2002. What kind of music does Jason Bourne like? Oh, what a question. Okay, so 2002, Jason Bourne, pretending he hasn't, well, he hasn't got amnesia in this case, so what does his CD collection have? I get the suspicion that he likes to wear a lot of black and listen to a lot of screamo. Right. So, so like, sort of My Chemical Romance, that sort of thing. Like he's got, he's so hyper-confident in his life when he's outside, you know, being a, a secret agent and whatnot, that when he gets home, he just wants to let all his emotions out. Sure. Did you ever see the movie Euro Trip? I unfortunately did see that film, yes. But you remember Matt Damon doing the punk rock mo- song number in that as a cameo? Uh, hey, do you want another relationship story of mine, Cap? I don't know if I do. <laughs> Oh, boy. So that film came out, right? Yeah. And my family rented it on, on, on VHS, I imagine, at that point from Blockbuster. And literally a couple of weeks before that, I had broken up with my girlfriend at the time because she had cheated on me. Right. And there's that and so song, I, yeah, that Matt Damon sings. Scotty doesn't know. Scotty doesn't know. I'm like, what are you doing to me, parents? What are That's you doing? Really cool. That is emotionally <laughs> scarring. I regret now bringing up the movie Euro Trip for a multitude of reasons, primarily that one. <laughs> I didn't need to go back there, Cam. I'm still sore from this, all right? But my point was, uh, Matt Damon in that movie, uh, you think Jason Bourne is like that at home, singing to uh, his uh, screamo music. Absolutely. I think he's got like himself a little disco ball set up or something like that with a microphone stand, so he can really go for it. Sure. I did appreciate how Bear's apartment was. That's something I like in spy movies where we see their apartments and they're nice, but they're like empty. Well, that seems to be all he does in his spare time is pull ups and, and you know, lifting weights. I mean, the, the first thing he does when he gets you know, out of the ocean and uh, puts a jumper on starts doing pull ups. That's why he's Jason Bourne and we're us talking about Jason Bourne. <laughs> you couldn't be more right. Yeah. But that does lead me on to the inevitable question, Cam, and I'm, I'm sure you've been waiting for it, but... Does the born identity make the knock list? 
I struggled with this so much because I really enjoyed this movie. This is a solid movie that I would recommend to a lot of people. I would say, hey, check out The Born Identity. I think you'll really enjoy it. But when we look at what the knock list is, this is like the definitive list. I mean, the name stands for the need to know official classics of the spy genre. And when I think of the Bourne franchise, a lot of the hallmarks of what people love about the Bourne movies doesn't really show up until the sequels. You know, there's bits of it throughout this movie. A lot of it's there in terms of the character building. But do people think of this as like the great Bourne movie? And are we looking to bring it into the knock list just because it's a Bourne movie and it ties to the trilogy? Or does it need to be a movie that's a classic, a true classic by itself? So my answer is a very mild no. I would still recommend this movie to people as a movie to watch, but I just don't think it's quite up there with what we look to put in the knock list. I'm really glad you said that, actually. I had it written down as no with an asterisk. Mm. And I have a feeling that your issues with it are around about the same as mine. It's a good film. Uh, I would recommend it to people, as you said, but I don't think it's a good spy film particularly i wouldn't i wouldn't put it up there were the last two that we've definitely put on the list i have a feeling that maybe some of the other borns down the road might have a better shot at making the list because for most of this film he's not even really acting as a spy he's maybe the first half of the film i think he's just sort of figuring out what's going on you know knowing as we do where the franchise goes like i can completely see some of the other ones being maybe easy ins on the knock list. Um, It's been a long time since I've seen them, so I'm not going to commit myself to that, but I'm open to that being the reality. Whereas like this one, I just was like, I don't know that this is quite the bar. Like I love the Bond franchise and it's going to be hard for me to shoot some of them out of the knock list, but a lot of them are not going to make the knock list. I don't think because they don't hit a bar. Like this is the canon of spy films and is The Born Identity a canon film? I don't think so. I think when you talk maybe about action movies of the 2000s, it's very important. And I think had a significant influence on, say, Casino Royale. Although, I, again, don't know how much of that has to do with this movie or The Born Supremacy, which followed a couple years later. So we're going to have to grapple with that later. But for now, I don't think The Born Identity belongs on this list. So are we both going with a no then? Yeah, mine's a very mild no, but yeah. Okay, I think that's settled then. The Born Identity is not making the list. That's our first miss after two very successful hits. How does it feel to have a miss, Cam? I think we need misses to help our listeners understand why the ones that make it in are so important. And I think, you know, North by Northwest uh, especially is one that I feel very strongly about. And Golden Eye... I think was a very great example of a very well put together James Bond picture. So, yeah, we definitely picked two strong ones to start off with. And and again, as we said, when we were saying about whether it's on the list or not, the Bourne identity is a good film. I would tell people to watch it. If they were talking about maybe watching the Bourne films, I'd say, Hey, they're good films, but I don't think this makes the knock list. I don't think it's the best spy film out there. Right. It's a list for movies that we think are great, not really, really good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, I did struggle with it, though. Believe me, after I finished watching it, I was just like, I really enjoyed watching this movie. But I don't know. Like, it just doesn't feel right. I, I, as I said before, it didn't really grab me in any way. That's, that's one thing. But I, I went back and watched it again today before we recorded to see if my thoughts had changed after a couple of days. And it was still on that tentative no. So when you came across with a no as well, I think I was sort of on board from that point. Right. But with that revelation, the dossier on the Born Identity is complete and filed as classified. So Cam, what film are we tackling next week? We are going to take on the 2015 adaptation, big screen adaptation of The Man from Uncle, starring Henry Cavill and Army Hammer directed by Guy Ritchie. And I have a bit of a challenge for you, Scott. This movie was based on a classic TV series. I think we should watch the pilot so we can comment a little bit on similarities between characters and uh, what have you and elements of the uh, storytelling. I'm up for it if you are. I'm down. So yeah, if you want to check listeners, if you want to check out the first episode of The Man From U.N.C.L.E. called 
the Vulcan Affair. And to the best of my knowledge, Spock does not appear in this. Well, there you go, listeners. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch The Man from Uncle, the film, and also, if you can fit it in, the pilot of the TV show. Don't forget to follow us, discreetly, of course, at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, good luck among the shadows.